He was a volunteer firefighter there, as even though he was an FBI agent working uh, bank robbery and related cases, as he was driving in that day, uh, I think he went on the radio and said he actually saw the plane hit the World Trade Center. And of course, it's on the regular radio. And he decided with his firefighting equipment in his trunk to go right to the site, park his view car there and put on his uh, you know, New Jersey firefighter jacket. He had introduced himself to the FDNY uh, firefighters and um, that's kind of the last. And he was on his radio telling people what he's going to do, his, uh, his car radio into the bank robbery squad. And uh, that's the last thing uh, anyone heard of him. And uh... all right, welcome back to another episode of Cold Red. I'm Ray Carr. And with me always is Jim Fitzgerald, a.k.a. Fitz. Fitz, Hi, Ray. how you doing? Good to see you as always. Yeah, uh, it's uh, the day we're actually recording is an ominous date in U.S. history. And uh, it's, of course, September 11th. And uh, again, welcome, everyone, to, to Cold Red. Please subscribe uh, if you can where the appropriate buttons are. But uh, we're going to talk today about uh, the Pennsylvania prison escapee. We both have some commentary on that. Uh, we'd also like to talk about the Long Island serial killer matter. And a little something at the end about... Uh, uh, a 53-year-old case in which the fugitive is still wanted by the FBI and uh, has some interesting Unabom connections to it. And we'll get to all those things. But, um, Ray, can I ask you, um, I know you were, in the, you were in the heat of looking for a 30-year bank robber uh, on uh, 22 years ago today, but you got kind of pulled off that case for a while, didn't you? Yeah. Um, I was sitting in the office. Maybe it was eight o'clock in the morning or or something. I hear somebody yell, Oh shit. And I'm going, Could be a number of things. And they yell, Ray, get in here. And I go into a little kitchen area we have. And there's on the TV in the first plane, uh, maybe it was nine o'clock, had just gone into the World Trade Center, first plane. And uh, I knew right away as soon as that happened that there was a terrorist attack and, and we were at war. And, uh, you know, everything just stopped, Jim. It was amazing that life as I knew it would change forever. And it has changed. And I remember I didn't have a day off until sometime the following year. So for four, almost five months, we worked every single day covering leads that were coming in about potential terrorists and things of that, things of that going on. But you know, I know that we all lost people that were close to us. And one of my friends who I played college football with, uh, we just were talking about him this morning with a lot of my teammates. We have a group text that goes on. It was Kevin Bowser, and he had a twin brother, Kelvin, who was an IRS agent. And Kevin was up in the World Trade Center that day when it collapsed on him, and he lost his life. And uh, I just want to send a shout out to all my teammates. Uh, Kevin was my brother, as he was the brother of all my teammates, and uh, he's missed very, very dearly. And I know you had uh, a friend that you lost that day as well. Yeah. Um, my teammate wasn't sports-oriented, but he was certainly on the bank robbery squad in New York City, and that was Lenny Hatton. And I had left New York in 1995. Now we're talking six years later, of course. Um, 
but uh, he was a great agent, came in from the New Orleans uh, division, uh, but he was a local Northern New Jersey guy. So he moved kind of back to his hometown. He was a volunteer firefighter there, which ironically, uh, if that's even the right word, may have led to his death on 9-11, because even though he was an FBI agent working uh, bank robbery and related cases, as he was driving in that day, uh, I think he went on the radio and said he actually saw the plane hit the World Trade Center. And of course, it's on the regular radio. And he decided with his firefighting equipment in his trunk to go right to the site, park his Buick car there and put on his, uh, you know, New Jersey firefighter jacket. He had introduced himself to the FDNY uh, firefighters. And um, that's kind of the last. And he was on his radio telling people what he's going to do, his, uh, his car radio into the bank robbery squad. And uh, that's the last thing uh, anyone heard of him. And um, if, if, his, if his remains were found, obviously, very few people had their remains found after that day. Uh, the building actually crushed them. So, uh, yeah, he was the one FBI agent killed on 9-11 and, uh, and, uh, at the scene. And he didn't even technically have to be there per se. But uh, I went to his memorial service about two months later. And it was the first time I was in northern New Jersey. And I looked across the water. and. Uh, certainly in person, there was no longer the World Trade Center. And, and you know, what a what a landmark that was for, you know, millions of people over the years. Certainly me driving to New York City every day from, from uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania back then. And all of a sudden those twin towers are gone. And I'm at a memorial service for one of the people who was killed there. And um, very sad day. And just real quick, it was weird being a profiler. I was in the office that day. And while I'm pretty much a realist and I, I, I focus on uh, what's actually happening in the world, the first plane hit, someone ran by the office, said, yeah, did you hear a plane hit the World Trade Center? And my mind went back to 1945 before any of us was born, but I was aware of a B-25 that uh, near the end of World War II flew into the Empire State Building. It was a foggy day and uh, it, it went in there and the pilot was killed, some other people, and I, for a, you know, just a few minutes, said, boy, is it possible one of these jumbo jets could accidentally fly? But I'm looking out, it's a clear day. Boy, I don't think so. And then within minutes, the second plane hit. I said, okay, <laughs> that changes the whole paradigm. This is an attack, as you said. And we follow the news the rest of the day. And it was weird for us profilers. I put all of this in my fourth book that'll be out early in 24, uh, the fourth version of my memoir series, that we profilers felt kind of awkward because we couldn't go out and cover leads. Uh, and most of us had criminal background, but not terrorist background. So that's who they wanted to be profilers, people with you know strong criminal investigative backgrounds, putting bad guys in jail, taking them to trial. Um, not so much terrorist, but, uh, but uh, before long, then, then uh, the anthrax case happened. Was that related? Was it not? It turned out, of course, not to be related to 9-11. I got put up in headquarters to do the red cell, with three other agents and analysts. We were giving weekly reports to Director Mueller, and I wound up going to Gitmo in 2003 for a month, interviewing some of the detainees with either direct or tangential connection to 9-11. Uh, to and uh, so that's where my career sort of went there. Um, very difficult time, but I wanna close this part out, Ray, saying, yeah, we both lost people we knew on the date itself but um, there are still law enforcement people and first responders dying from the 9-11 attacks. 
Uh, and I know you know why, because that's why they went, they yes. went to these crime scenes. They, all they wanted to do was help look for victims. They didn't put the mask on or these cheap little paper masks we used to wear in COVID, which probably didn't do anything there either. And they, of course, contracted cancer. Jim Clementi, our guest from season one, he's lucky to be alive. He had to go through a bone marrow transplant. I think he mentioned that briefly during our interview. And my former ASAC, Jack Hess, just died about six weeks ago. And I was very sad to hear that. So uh, they're still dying out there, FBI agents, other firefighters and um, and law enforcement and rescue personnel who weren't even there for the uh, uh, collapse itself of, of the Pentagon, of course, of uh, World Trade Center and out in the field in Pennsylvania. So uh, a long day with, with many lingering effects, of course, 22 years later. That's true, Jim. And, and let's not forget about the agents from Philly and all over the country that went up to the landfill uh, up in Staten Island and had to go through all of the material that they brought over from Ground Zero and different jewelry and body parts. It, it was a trying experience. And they, too, are concocting or getting diseases and cancer clusters because of being exposed to that stuff. Those at the Pentagon, the same thing. And in central uh, PA, where the flame went down, Flight 93. So all those agents, and, and they were all a part of it. Uh, anybody that was in the Bureau that day uh, felt that and knew that that day changed our lives forever. It really did. Yeah, just just closing this part out, I did go to the Pentagon about two, week, uh, two weeks after the plane crashed there. Luckily, the people running that operation knew to put us in full hazmat suits. Um, And I did wear a full hazmat suit, helmet. I mean, you know, everything covered duct tape around any any connective type parts and um, and knock on wood. Twenty two years later, no indications of any problems with me. But uh, the people those first few days, first weeks at all these sites, um, uh, many of them have died and many of them are fighting cancer. And it's a. very difficult thing. So uh, again, uh, our condolences to the 3,000 who were lost by the plane crashes themselves and uh, and certainly to the people who have died since then and, and uh, are still suffering uh, the effects of the cancer from inhaling the various asbestos and other materials at those sites. So uh, I felt, Ray, you and I both agreed that, you know, being 9-11, we had to say something uh, Absolutely, in that Jim. regard at the beginning. The show is about victims. Uh, we yes. try to make every episode focusing on the victims, both had a, and of course, our last guest, Dee McDonald, or is it Dee McDonald? She goes by both. You know, we decided to call her a survivor, and, and I, I agree with that. Uh, but if you're actually dead, you are a victim, and uh, and we've known too many of them over the years, certainly from 9-11, as well as other crimes that we discuss. So the least we can do on our program today is... Um, is discuss uh, that tragic day and those tragic events. Well, just to close out, just let's just say that for all those that lost their lives that day, may they rest in peace. And for all the families that lost somebody that day, uh, may you find solace in whatever it is that brings your memories of that special day and know that we're thinking of you on this day and every day. God bless you all. With that said, it's, we're skipping a guest this week. Um, we've both been a little busy. Uh, you have been on Fox Nation talking about the Long Island serial killer. And I was on Good Day Philadelphia last week, 
and on uh, a, a radio station this morning talking about this PA prison escape. So a lot going, a lot is going on right now. It really is. So let's start with what's going on with this Long Island serial killer case. What can you tell us, Fitz? Well, yeah, I, uh, I obviously was aware of that from early on in uh, 2009, 2010, bodies are being found. Um, we have a guest coming up later this season, Bobby Chacon. He actually grew up in that area, so he'll have some insight to give us. I know he's done some um, media interviews about this particular case. But, uh, yeah, the Fox Nation folks, which is a subscription service, not everyone will have access to it. But they told me usually within a few weeks or a month, at least snippets are put out on YouTube and, uh, and maybe even on the regular Fox News channel. So, yeah, I just went into it a little bit. I, uh, I didn't work the case at all. I was retired already when this, these things started happening. And uh, even though I have been working cases in my retirement, as I know you have, Ray, this was not one of them. But, uh, yeah, back in July, a guy named uh, uh, Rex uh, Howerman was arrested. He's a uh, late 50s, uh, I think 59-year-old architect, live in that general area of Long Island, or Long Island. And he worked as an architect in Midtown Manhattan. In fact, for whatever tactical or legalistic reason, that's where the uh, uh, Suffolk County officers actually made the arrest. They decided that would be uh, uh, the best place to do it. And uh, he was actually arrested for three murders, uh, one from uh, 2009 and two others from 2010. And he suspected in a fourth one. But there are a number of other bodies, upwards of 10 or 12. The count isn't even complete, including an infant's body uh, that somehow were disposed of in this particular area. Of, uh, make sure I get that right. Yeah, Gilco Beach, uh, which is a stretch in, in, uh, in Suffolk County, Long Island. So a, a lot of strange things going on with this guy. He was uh, an, an odd duck, people that knew him back to high school. And, and yeah, some of the issues that I brought up was when I was asked by the producer, um, what, you know, what are the police doing now or how do they put all this together? And I said, they're basically doing a, they don't do a profile of a known offender. They had profiles of this guy before. Once the subject is identified, it becomes a behavioral assessment. So they're going to look into everything this guy has done that there's any sort of trace element of uh, uh, for his whole life. And they're going to go back to his grade school years, his high school years, what kind of uh, arsons or or uh, or animal cruelty could be detected from, you know, the, where he was growing up as a 6, 10, 12-year-old kid, peeping Tom type incidents, who knows. But this guy obviously has some paraphilias, some fetishes. He seems uh, dedicated to one type of victim, uh, mostly anyway, petite women that almost could look like. They're much younger than they are. Some of these women were five feet, barely 100 pounds. He found them on Craigslist. They were sex workers, a.k.a. prostitutes. Uh, he actually talked with a pimp of at least one of them. And uh, and uh, he would go off of them. It looks like it was hard to tell cause of death because when the bodies were finally found, they were in, in advanced stages of decomposition. But they feel that most of them were strangled as the best the medical examiners could put together. So uh, really a bizarre case. And the guy had a sadistic element to it. Besides the sadism involved in actually killing someone, he also had the cell phone of one of them. And, uh, and, a, and, a, and a year or so after uh, the murder of one of these women, he actually called 
uh, a number that was programmed in and got the sister of the victim and was taunting the sister saying, oh, um, so-and-so is dead. Uh, you'll never be seeing her again. Uh, yeah, and I'm the one that did it. Uh, so this guy is taking his <laughs> being a serial murderer to even a higher level of, uh, of, of, of doing the next worst thing, and that is to uh, harassing family members about their dead loved one. And, and in fact, he was the killer, and he's in fact saying these things to her. So it was interesting going through this case, spent about an hour and a half uh, with the producer uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, and snippets will be out there of this guy. And uh, and again, I always like to say hats off to the police up there. A lot of this was Savre, uh, old school gumshoe investigative work. They eventually got some DNA and they could link it to some uh, from the from the victims from their bodies. And uh, they're not survivors, by the way. These are victims by dictionary definition because they're dead. Um, and well, Jim, uh, they actually me, linked the DNA to this guy. Let me throw, I'm gonna, I have a couple questions here. And I'm, I'm sure these are some of the same questions that people in our audience are probably going to have as well. I know New York is a haven for sex workers. So for a serial killer, I would think it's fairly easy to hide in a city like New York, in and out. Is that, is that about right? Well, sure. I mean, what's it, 8 million people now? In the last right. few years, it's uh, maybe a million more of undocumented people uh, all over the place. This is Suffolk County. And um, and looking back at this, I, you know, I didn't, I purposely tried to put a profile together in my head before I read all the media information and the, and the search warrant affidavits, things like that. And uh, the Suffolk County Gilgo Beach stretch you know, it was clear to me this was an area of familiarity with this guy. So the sex workers are not, you know, well known for strolling up and down that highway. Um, it just doesn't happen there. But this guy knew how to find them either in or about New York uh, City, you know, the boroughs of Queens or uh, or Brooklyn, hook up with them, get them in the car. And what one of the big things we discussed, um, and as I know you well know this, in any crime like this, and specifically these sets of crimes, there were at least three crime scenes. One where the individual, the victim was picked up. The third one was where the body uh, was disposed. But the second one was where the murders took place and no doubt the rapes. I'm not sure they're technically rapes if he at least paid them some money uh, up front, or at least they thought they were gonna hold on to the money. But nonetheless, these were sexual assaults. This guy's a sexual sadist. This is a sexual homicide series of them. And uh, so there's three separate crime scenes and what the police are, are gonna be looking for and focusing on, where's the middle one? Where were the crimes actually committed, the murders themselves? They don't think them happened in the scenes. Probably in a car. I believe he drove a, some kind of green pickup. It was a Chevy. Avalanche. I think it was okay. a Chevy, Jim, a Chevy Avalanche. Okay. Um, well, you and know, Jim, uh, at least some of them, Go ahead. You know, you're, you're right. When you have these three crime scenes, the problem that law enforcement faces is that they never really find out or very rarely do they, are they able to determine what the first two are. They always get the dump site where the body is found, but the act where the crime actually occurs and the pickup, they usually never have an opportunity to determine what those or where those crime scenes are or were unless the offender tells them. And at this point, it doesn't look like he's much in a cooperating mood. 
No, and they're going to use cell phone triangulation, of course, uh, closed circuit TV cameras, and they're going to try to pick everything together. The guy was six foot four, so he kind of stuck out a little bit in that regard. Uh, and I think there were some early descriptions of the uh, of the potential killer driving that pickup we just mentioned. You know, six foot four, you know, white guy, etc. But that's all they could really. That's all they had for years. And then finally, some other breaks came along. And, you know, some burner phone uh, information became available. And then uh, uh, they did get DNA off some uh, one or more of the victims. And that could, in fact, be linked to uh, to, uh, to to Howard himself. But, uh, yeah, again, uh, credits to these investigators who stuck with the uh, who stuck with the crimes. And, uh, and they're going to learn a lot from this guy on his social media following his Internet searches. And they own everything in his computer now. And, well, I'm always clear to say it's not a hundred percent reflection of who you are. You can at least show someone's kind of interest uh, uh, or their their hobbies, if not their fetishes or paraphilias, by some of their internet searches. And uh, while that may not prove this guy's a killer necessarily, uh, it can certainly add to the motivational factors when the time time comes to trial. And just real quick here, some of the searches he was doing was. Have the police identified the Long Island serial killer yet? And why haven't the police identified them? So I guess an innocent person could be asking those questions, but you tie that in with the other uh, sort of bizarre behavior this guy is exhibiting, and uh, it's, it's, it should make for a pretty strong case. And, Ray, as you and I always say, we're big due process people. This guy is innocent until proven guilty. We right. are just focusing on what we're reading in the media uh, the police reports, the affidavits, things like that, and trying to piece together uh, the information we have and see how this it fits this particular individual here. You know, one of the things with the cell phone tracing technology, you know, the GPS part with the cell phone, is, in my experience, they usually hold that for a six-month period before they expunge it because there's so much data. And because these took so long, and, and that's a question, and that's a very viable question, we're getting a lot of that same questioning from people. Uh, I, I took a couple of calls today. Why the heck is it taking so long? Why is it taking so long for them to catch this guy? I mean, heck, Jim, he's six foot four, you know, close to 300 pounds. He's, he's a cheesesteak away from 300 pounds. And I mean, you know, why can't they pick him out of here? Why can't they grab this guy? And it's I wish we had the answer to say, well, the reason why they didn't is because of one, two, three. But it's not that simple. And you know it's not that simple. And I wish a lot of other people knew it was that simple. But the DNA, and I think it was a little bit of the genealogy that kind of tied yes. it back to him. And that genealogy is a new uh, technique in forensics that is going to lead to a lot of solved cold cases and a lot of these older cases. And it's happening all over the country. And it's a great technique. And technology is really starting to catch up with some of these individuals that thought they could get away with things that they no longer will be able to. But here's the question, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners want to know this. I want to know this. Do you think there's even more victims out there that they don't even know about yet? The answer to that is um, most definitely yes. That's my belief. But there are so, there are also additional victims that can't be directly linked to this guy. And some of the methodologies or the MO is a bit off. We discussed a bit on the uh, Fox Nation uh, piece about the difference between uh, MO, modus operandi, 
That is the necessary elements that an offender takes to commit a crime, just A, B, C, and D. What we also talked about was the signature elements of a crime. They are pleasure-seeking or need-driven behavior based on this individual and the the opportunities he takes with his victims while committing a crime. It may be cutting off some of their hair. It may be taking body parts, and we're familiar with those cases. It may be removing underwear or driver's license. They're going to be looking for some of those um, trophies or souvenirs within all the uh, property owned by uh, Howerman in this case. So. Uh, there's still a lot of evidence they're going to be working on. We're not getting this released to us on a daily basis. This will come out at the, at the time of the trial, of course. But, uh, but yeah, it's not. And look, there are copycat killers that decide to, oh, because even in, in 2010 or so, there's information about sort of a, I hate to use the word dumping ground for bodies, but a disposal site for bodies uh, along this uh, stretch of highway. In, uh, in, in in Suffolk County. And there could be someone that wants to knock off an old girlfriend, an, an ex-wife, whatever, does it, dumps them there, hope doesn't get found for a while, the person, and then, oh, well, it's the same serial killer. They're not going to suspect me. But uh, uh, so whether it's an individual homicide that occurred or someone else decided to ply their trade of being a serial killer, uh, it's uh, it's uh, that can't be ruled out either. But for now, it looks like at least they got him uh, Hoerman for uh, three homicides with strong suspicions of a fourth. And I'm still there, sure they're still trying to build their case in that regard. You know, Jim, there was, uh, and I don't have the exact date, but there were four or five bodies that were laid or uh, exposed or disposed of along a stretch of roadway down in Atlantic County outside of Atlantic City. And I think that was 2008, 2009, 10, something of that nature. And when I saw that, I immediately reverted back to the Hillside Stranglers. Remember the Hillside Stranglers where they, he laid out the prostitutes along the side of the road. The difference with him, Bruno and Bianchi, is that what they did is they washed the bodies. And a lot of people say, well, why did they wash the bodies? And then you go back that that's kind of like a signature aspect to the crime. Of course. Because it's something that wasn't needed in order for them to successfully commit the crime. It was done out of need-driven, you know, you know, psycho or physiological uh, need on the part of the offenders. And I wonder about this individual. I would wonder if they look in his computer, are they going to find that he researched other serial offenders? I, I would really like to know that. But I'll tell you what, I know one thing we're going to do. We're going to keep our audience well informed about this as we move forward. Uh, I know you'll be you'll be involved in this, and I'll be checking in with you to see what you're doing. But what do you think about switching over here to this uh, to Pennsylvania and this escaped prisoner? Here's a guy, Jim. He's in his twelfth day. He escaped at nine nine o three nine o six in the morning uh, at Chester County Prison by scaling a wall. And he scales this wall. And when I first saw that, I went, there's no way that this guy walked out there the first day, first attempt, and scales this wall at five foot, you know, 34-year-old male, and scales this wall. He had a practice, whether he practiced in his cell or he had someone that helped him, someone else inside that prison knew. And I always thought that, based upon my experience, that he did a great job in breaking out of the prison. He planned it extremely well. He really did. He planned it well, 
But I don't think he was that acute at planning what he does after he gets out. I don't, I don't think once he got out, he went, holy crap, what am I going to do? And they locked this guy down. Now, who is this guy? Who is this Daniello Cavalcante? Who is he? He's from Brazil. He fled Brazil because he shot a friend of his and killed him over a debt that he owed him over fixing a car. So what's that tell us about him? He's good with his hands. He's probably pretty good at knowing some things. He flees to Puerto Rico. He gets to Puerto Rico. He makes it in the United States. You know, when the borders are wide open, he makes it in the United States. He makes his way up to Chester County. He's in the Phoenixville area. He meets a girl that has two children. He starts dating her for a year. And everybody says, oh, he's a pretty nice guy. He's a pretty nice guy. He's not a bad guy until he starts drinking. And then he gets nasty. He gets real nasty. Well, apparently he must have boasted or said something to someone. But his girlfriend found out about the, the homicide in Brazil. And she says, I don't want anything to do with this guy. I'm going to go to law enforcement. And she says, I'm going to the cops and telling the cops what you did in an argument they had. He comes back and says, uh-uh, you're not going to do that. And he has a knife, and in front of her two children, he stabs her 30 times. And people say, well, why did he stab her 30 times? You don't need to stab someone 30 times to kill someone. That's correct. So there's a lot of anger here. And with a knife and the use of a knife, it's very personal. And so he does this. He gets caught, but he flees. He flees Phoenixville, gets in a car, and he's driving. And guess where they catch him? Down your old neck of the woods, down in Virginia. They catch him down there. They extradite him back up here. He's found guilty. He's in prison. He's in prison. On September 1st, he's going to be moved to a state correction facility. The county prison is usually a holding facility for those prisoners that have sentences two years or less. Anybody with more than two years of a sentence, okay, is transferred to a state correction facility unless you're awaiting trial on current charges. And that's why he was at this prison. Now, how he got up, and if you look, and people can go on and look at the scaling of the wall, and if you look around the waist, he had extra clothing around his waist. And he used that extra clothing to be able to get through the razor wire that they had in getting over the fence. I still like to know how he did that and still like to know how nobody saw him. But the thing is, is that the officer who was in the tower, 18 years on the job, I don't know what was going on, but here there was a cell phone in the tower, which is a no-no, and uh, he was terminated. He was suspended with intent to dismiss, and they dismissed him. So this guy is out. He's in this area outside the prison in Bukopsin, Pennsylvania, which is uh, probably about 25 miles kind of west of Philadelphia and probably about uh, 30 miles north of Maryland and less than five miles from the state of Delaware. And he's in the woods. And the terrain is tough. Darkness, weather conditions are very, very difficult. It's just a real, real problem. And then uh, Saturday night, raining like crazy, he finds a hole in the perimeter that they have secured. And he goes to this place called Bailey Dairy, which is only 1.8 miles from the prison. And he gets into a truck that has the keys in it of a 
of a place where people are still working. So it's on <laughs> inside this dairy and people are probably going back and forth. So they're leaving the keys. It's on site. It's not like it's in someone's driveway, but it's on site. He gets in, he takes off. He gets about 20 miles before the truck runs out of gas. But where does he go? He goes to a place he's familiar with. He goes back to Phoenixville. And what does he do? He goes to try and find help. He goes to two buddies' houses, right? He rings the doorbell on a ring doorbell. Now, here's, here's the problem I have with the ring doorbell. I have a ring doorbell. And if someone rings my doorbell and I'm not at home, it kicks to my phone. Even if I am at home, it kicks to my phone. So I can either talk to them from I'm out to dinner or I'm out at a friend's house or I'm in the home. I can talk to them right from my phone. This person doesn't say anything to anybody till he gets home, which is about two hours later. And then he calls police, which tells me, and I don't know if there's any recording, but he's giving his friend time to move on. I'd talk to that guy real hard if I were the police, and I'm sure they are. So right now, it's kind of changed. The whole investigation of what they had, where they had a perimeter, kind of like if you look back, Norman Johnson, I was involved in that one in 1999. Who was part of the Johnson gang. He escaped from a prison up in central PA. He makes his way down, comes down to Chester County, which is an area he knows, right? Here's a funny story about that. Uh, he steals a car, which he's, which he was good at. He was good back in the day. That's what they did. They were involved in ITSP. The FBI was involved in that investigation. A good friend of mine, Dave Richter. Matter of fact, Jim, we should think about having him on one day to talk about the Johnson case. But anyways, he goes to a gas station. Now, he's been in prison for 20 years, right? He's been in prison for 20 years. He goes to uh, a gas station to put gas in the car, and he doesn't know how to do it. Hmm. And you go, well, how does he not know how to do it? Well, because back then, you pumped your own gas. Now, you use a car, you got to go inside, and you got to press buttons. He's going, I have no idea how to do this. So what's that tell you is that when someone goes to prison, time stops. And it freezes to what they remember when they were out on the streets. Yet everything continues to move forward. And so that's how one of the ways he abandoned the car because it ran out of gas. We wound up catching him because he hid under a porch in the house in Mendenhall on Route 52, just outside of Westchester. Here we are, Westchester again. It took 19 days to catch him. And he was all over the place. The one that took uh, was even more difficult was Eric Frame. In 2014, just before I retired, Eric Frame shoots two Pennsylvania State troopers outside of Pennsylvania State Police Barracks. He kills one of the troopers, who I happen to personally know. He was in the media barracks, which is down near Philadelphia. Uh, he goes into the woods in the Poconos. It took us 48 days to catch him. 48 days. The information that's coming out now about this guy is the fact He's changed his clothes, he's cut his hair, he's shaved, and I'm always wondering, how was he able to do this? Where did he get the equipment to do this? He has different clothes, and he also has a cell phone. Where did he get the cell phone? Did he break into a home? I mean, because most of the, the verbiage was, he made a statement, all I need is water and corn, and there's plenty of that around here, and in Westchester, nothing but cornfields out there. That's all I need to survive. And he's done that for the last 12 days. But I think now he may be getting some help. And now 
It's not one of these perimeter things. Now it's a traditional uh, fugitive investigation. I think the U.S. Marshals, because it's a prison break, have the lead on this, uh, and not so much the state police anymore, although the state police are still actively involved in it. But I, it's really changed the dynamics of everything. That kind of gives you a little bit of what's been going on with this. I don't know if you have any questions or what you think some of our um, some of our audience might be asking. Well, um, yeah, I I don't know. Um, it's only been a few times in my Ben Salem police and FBI career that I was actually hunting for you know, currently uh, or recently escaped bank robbers. Uh, I locked a guy up for multiple bank robberies in Queens, New York, and he became an informant. He was actually giving me information on some Hells Angels activity, but he was in prison in Arizona and he calls me collect one day, of course, all excited. Jim, you're not going to believe it. A helicopter just landed in the middle of the yard during, uh, you know, the general pop, you know, exercise program, general population. And, uh, and one of our guys jumped on and there were guns fired, a helicopter took off. So there's one way of escaping from a prison. Uh, <laughs> this guy, uh, of course, uh, that we're talking about, uh, he did like a Spider-Man move uh, up between two walls that were uh, almost designed for that. And a guy who's in decent shape. But as I, I remember, I worked with the U.S. Marshals in 1982 and we captured a, uh, uh, a, a, a wanted fugitive out of Italy who was involved in killing uh, the Salerno, I believe it was Salerno, uh, chief of police. And he somehow came to the U.S., was arrested. He was put in Rikers Island. He escaped from Rikers Island, came to Ben Salem, where I was a detective sergeant at this point. They suspected him robbing a couple um, uh, uh, banks in the area, uh, but he was living with his daughter, and they actually traced him because his daughter had to go to a hospital one day. And I guess they were checking all hospitals and whatever in the general area and found out her name and uh, where he lived. And we arrested him one night. Uh, the marshals took him up um, and put him in the MCC in New York City. That's the federal holding facility. Within a year, he tried to escape out that window with some sheets with another guy. But guess what? He short sheeted himself and he was about 30 feet off the ground. Uh, or the next roof he was trying to get to, he let go and he died. So, uh, so there's a guy who escaped at least once from prison and uh, in Rikers Island and tried it a second time. Um, I remember hunting. He wasn't a prison escapee, but Eric Rudolph, who was the uh, the, the uh, Atlanta bomber and the uh, Alabama abortion clinic bomber, mm -hmm. which killed a police officer and severely injured a nurse. So we knew who he was. Uh, you know, a day or two after that. We knew he was from Western North Carolina, a very uh, rough and uh, forested terrain. And we were searching for him. I made three separate trips to that area. It was usually the SWAT guys and the HRT guys. Did you ever go there, Ray, hunting for him when you were in I SWAT? never went there, but let me, do you know how long it took to catch him? Five years. Absolutely five years. Can you believe that? So people- you know how they caught him? They caught him dumpster diving. Exactly. Which at some point, this guy's going to get desperate. He's yeah. going to get hungry. He'll need mm -hmm. more than water and corn, and they're going to find him besides uh, or behind some restaurant at 3 a.m. So I hope the police and even civilians are keeping a close eye on these uh, yeah. on the dumpsters behind restaurants because uh, at some point he knows he's going to run out of friends. You know, you know what else is going to be a giveaway is um, um, 
the fact that he is a native speaker of Portuguese. And uh, I never heard him speak. It seems like he can speak and understand English, but I assure you he has a Portuguese language accent. And that's why whenever he's, he talks to anyone, it's going to be tough for him to disguise that. You know, trained actors can do it pretty well, but they have dialect coaches, things like that. This guy, if he acts squirrely at all, and he's talking to someone, even like trying to be innocent, oh, yeah, I need gas, and yeah, I, or you would get some cash, yeah, and give me some of these uh, tasty cakes or something if he's still in the Philly area. Uh, but that's going to also <laughs> give him away. So he's going to have to try to kind of be mute, and, uh, and, and, and whatever he's going to do to escape, Unlike any U.S. citizen born and raised here, they don't have to really worry about their dialect features. This guy does. It's one more way besides the, his physical appearance. He can change that. He can't hide these features, not unless, you know, a, a decade or two goes by and he really works at that. So uh, so this guy's days are numbered. There's no doubt. Um, I agree. Uh, he, he, he knows he's hot. He, he probably now, he's expended his contacts in Phoenixville and the general Philly suburbs. His goal is to get in a car and take off and get out of the area. There was a prison break in uh, 2021 in um, in Alabama where a guy kind of sweet talked. Uh, it was it was 22. I'm sorry, 2022. A, a, a convicted murder sweet talked a female warden or deputy warden, and she helped him escape. And they were on the lam for 11 days, finally caught in Indiana. Now, he had inside help, and that's how. Uh, so once he got out, uh, his egress from the area was much easier. There was um, there was the two prisoners who escaped out of New York State uh, back in 2015. One of them was shot. Um, about, they were on their lam for three, three weeks. They had a woman inside, a clerk, a secretary, help them. Mm -hmm. They dug out through a tunnel, but she didn't show up at the other end to give them clothes or a ride. So they were three weeks basically on their own. And uh, one was killed by the police. One was captured a few days later and put back in. But these guys, you know, if they even have a little bit of smarts, it's not too hard to be, you know, a week to 10 days to two weeks out there. Uh, if it gets a little bit more, uh, you know, time frame than that, it gets a little bit tougher in uh, in that regard. So, uh, but I'll tell you last the one thing. My my final bureau trip uh, was in 2007 to uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and I was training police officers there. And they they get like a, a thousand police officers killed per year in the in the country of Brazil. I said, those numbers are phenomenal. Then they kind of say, yeah, but we kill about 20,000 bad guys oh, uh, in, in Brazil. And he said, and we started talking about the prison system. They are, it is horrendous there. So the last thing this guy wants is to be extradited back to Brazil. He already has a murder charge in, uh, in, in, in Pennsylvania uh, pending while well, he's been convicted. And uh, he knows he's doing time for that. Um, quite frankly, he knows he's not going to go anywhere for the rest of his life. Uh, uh, you know, this guy is desperate and I think he would do anything to stay free, but if he's going to be captured, he wants to stay in the U S and, uh, and I hope anyone who comes near this guy, you know, don't try to fight him, whatever, just, uh, you know, get away and call the police if you can do that. But this guy, uh, he'll be getting more desperate as time goes on. He's not sleeping very well. Anyone who's had an infant or his work, you know, robbery details or surveillances, and we've done both, Ray. 
<laughs> you know what it's like yeah. when you go without sleep for days at a time. So he's not going to be thinking very well. He, that could cause him to make mistakes, but it could also cause him to be trick, uh, quick on the trigger. I'm speaking euphemistically here, but in some way of, uh, of hurting or knifing someone. So he's maybe stealing, maybe shoplifting. He may be uh, stealing clothes off of clotheslines. Uh, again, dumpster diving. So uh, he's going to make a mistake. He's going to get caught. Let's just hope no one else is hurt when that time comes. One thing I think it's important to know is that he is an illegal immigrant here illegally. They've already ticked and picked up his sister, and they've arrested her. ICE has arrested her, which is Immigration Customs Enforcement, has arrested her, and they're deporting her back to Brazil as she came over as well. So here's the thing. If you help or abet a fugitive, or if you hide a fugitive, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be charged. Uh, law enforcement does not take that uh, very kindly. They, they become very, very, they're, especially with someone like this. So they're going to, they know, they know what he's familiar with. They've talked to former coworkers. They talked to uh, the woman's former family. They're concerned about their own safety, about him coming after them. So Jim is right. I mean, look, this guy is armed and dangerous. We have no idea what he's in possession of. Is he in possession of a weapon? Is he in possession of a sharp object? I would say in the abundance of caution, yes. And if you see him or you have information to where he may be, immediately call 911. Don't try and be a hero and say, you know what? I know there's $20,000 out there and it's probably going to go up. I'm going to take care of this myself. So I make sure I get the money. Well, I think your life is worth a little bit more than $20,000. Don't be a hero. You know what they say about heroes? They usually don't collect the money on the other end, most heroes. So make sure you do the right thing. Turn it over to the experts. Turn it over to the men and women in blue. And I'm telling you, the men and women in blue, they're the reason why you're able to sleep at night because they continue to protect you. And they continue to do a great job, and they're doing a great job with this as well. I know a lot of the guys that are still out there, they're doing a heck of a job. Jim, you have any closing comments? Well, I do want to bring up um, one more fugitive, and he was never in prison as far as we know. But I have a sort of an interesting uh, indirect connection to him. And it's also been in the news lately, and that is that a wanted radical activist from 1970, whose name is Leo Frederick Burt. Uh, the FBI, uh, he's still wanted from uh, a bombing at the University of Wisconsin in uh, August of 1970, protesting the Vietnam War. Uh, th three of his colleagues were in fact arrested, but this guy, Leo Burt, somehow managed to get away. There's a good picture of him from the late 60s, 1970, uh, uh, when he was arrested prior to that, but he basically vanished off the face of the earth and hasn't been seen since then. In the last week, the FBI released an age-generated um, uh, picture that we're going to put up here on the site of what Leo Frederick Burt may look like right now. But my connection, of course, I wasn't even in law enforcement in 1970. I kind of do remember a lot of bombings around the country. Late 60s, very early 70s, 
kind of similar to some of the stuff we see happening now with different groups out there. And we can maybe save that for a, a different podcast. But but anyway, um, when I got to the Unibomb Task Force in 1975, you know, Ted Kaczynski wasn't even thought of yet. There were multiple suspects or suspect groups, the Dungeons and Dragons crowd, the airport mechanics crowd, um, uh, the, uh, you know, former law enforcement or military bomb making crowd. And these had individual squads on the UTF of two or three agents. One of those squads was dedicated to Leo Burt because they thought this this guy may have reincarnated. He went dark in 1970 as a bomber, 1978 um, in the general area of Chicago, not too far from University of Wisconsin as the crow flies, the bombing start uh, by this Unabomber person. So there was a strong contention, and I would talk to these agents. They were convinced Leo Burt was uh, the Unabomber. I said, all right, well, I can't rule it out in my early days. Um, but after a while, I said, no, I'm, I'm kind of putting him aside. Flash ahead to uh, 2017. I published my third book with the long chapter on the Unibomb case. I mentioned Leo Bird in it. Now the miniseries Manhunt Unibomber is being put together, and they're trying to keep it as factual as possible. We know they did some uh, you know, literary license in there, as all Hollywood productions do. But on the whole, they wanted to keep it as factual as possible, and they did. And, and we wanted to mention that as Fitz shows up on the task force, one of the many suspects, uh, either named or unnamed, is Leo Frederick Burke, the 1970 University of Wisconsin Bonner. So uh, the producer wants to bring him in, the director, meaning his his character, put the picture up. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's great. And maybe we can even identify this guy through this miniseries and get him finally get him arrested. And I'm, I kind of forgot about it. He's in the script. Then like a week or two later, I get a call from the director, uh, Jim, the... The Discovery Channel lawyers are a little concerned about uh, using Leo Burt's actual name and his wanted poster in the miniseries because, as you know, Jim, everyone whose name is being used, real people, we have to get a, a waiver signed by them. And since he's not willing to sign the waiver, uh, we could be sued by him. I said, wait a minute. The Discovery lawyers are concerned about being sued by a former top 10 fugitive wanted by the FBI, and he still wanted, he just is not in the top 10 anymore. Well, yeah, I said, no, this, there's a $150,000 reward for this guy. Let's put his real picture up, use his real name. And I really argued for that. I, I backed off on a few things they were doing in the script, but I argued for that. And finally, the lawyer said, yeah, I don't think we really have to worry about a wanted fugitive suing us if in fact he's arrested based on this series. So, uh, if you watch the series and it's still out there and available, uh, they do actually put his picture up from 1970 and mention the actual name, uh, Leo Frederick Burt. So now six or so years later after that, the FBI decided to age progress uh, his picture. And uh, who knows how accurate it is or not, but actually looks like a few guys I've come across over the years. And uh, <laughs> I'm gonna maybe uh, have a further talk with them and see uh, where they come from. but. Uh, Hey, Leo, if you're out there listening to us, how about, uh, you know, contact us and uh, we'll make sure you get fair treatment by our old colleagues in the FBI. But if anyone else looks at the picture or has a guy who doesn't want to talk too much about 1970 and what he was doing around then, um, uh, you, you you may be buddies with, uh, with his wanted fugitive who not only bombed a building, 
but killed a researcher inside and uh, and seriously wounded several others. So, uh, so yeah, we're talking about a lot of wanted people here today, Ray. Uh, and obviously yeah. started with 9-11. Uh, the, the Long Island serial killer now under arrest, an escaped uh, convict. And now uh, this Leo Burt, who's been on the lam for 53 years. And I'm pretty sure he's still alive and out there. And uh, and uh, it'll be nice if we can finally identify him after all these, not just years, but decades. So Cold Red listeners and viewers, you're tasked with this. Don't do anything crazy. If you see something, say something. Uh, call the police and... Uh, at least for Leo Bird, you got one hundred fifty thousand dollars in your pocket if it actually turns out to be him. Jim, you never know. He may decide. You know what, Jim and Ray, you guys are nice guys. I'm going to come on your show and turn myself in, and that would just be fine with Jim and I. We'd love to have you on the show, Bert. You know, just come on, and uh, you know, you look at it this way: you wouldn't have to look over your shoulder anymore. That's a good thing, right? That that is a good thing. Remember. Uh, Remember a, a columnist for the Philadelphia Daily News named Chuck Stone back in the yes. 80s and 90s? Yes. Uh, he somehow had, you know, he would write in all these wanted fugitives, even like cop killers, they would wind up contacting him and they say, I'll, I'll turn myself into you. And he would make sure to meet them and, you know, nothing would happen. They'd get lawyers, whatever. So uh, so I think Chuck Stone is long gone. But uh, if somebody thinks they're uh, knows they're wanted for a crime and wants to get this out of their system, uh uh, and my last story about this, I'll never forget, is a brand new a store detective at Strawbridge and Clothier in 1975. A, uh, a, I, I made a, a shoplifting arrest, no big deal, and uh, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of leather jackets. And we call the police. They come in, uh, take our handcuffs off, they put them on, and they take the arrest over from there. Um, a nice officer. I actually don't remember his name after all these years, although I did write about it in my uh, my first book. And he leaves the room, and one of the supervisors, who happened to be a retired Philly cop, you know who that officer is? I said, oh, no, nice guy, humble, quiet. Yeah, he's the guy that three months ago arrested Susan Sachs, the former uh, weather underground bomber, right. bank robber, whatever. I said, yeah, that was a big story. Yeah, they the FBI put the picture out that day of what you know she may be in the Philly area. He sees her in a crowd, goes up, she plays. Hardball tries to get away. He brings her in and through fingerprints confirm that's her. So these arrests can be made. Uh, it doesn't have to be someone walking up and confessing to you. But between this escaped convict, between uh, Leo Burt, we've got pictures of this guy. Keep your eyes open, everybody. See something. Say something to the police. And um, and uh, you can make our society a good bit safer. Yeah, let's be part of the solution, everybody. Let's always try and be part of the solution. Anything else, Jim, before we sign off here? I think I'm good. It was nice just you and I talking again, Ray. Yeah, it was. Uh, it just was. like I the agree. early episodes. We love our guest. And no, yes. we didn't have a guest cancel on us. This is this was planned because we took the summer off and I guess we did the Barbie thing. We talked a bit about Barbie yes. in the summertime and we uh, had the Aussies on the last two episodes. So um so yeah, glad to have uh just you uh, the two of us talk here and let's do it again at some point and uh, talk about all the cases that are happening that uh that affect all of us in this country. And uh, yeah, don't be a victim yourself. Be a survivor by even avoiding the crime in the first place, if you can do that. All right, everybody. This is Ray and Fitz signing off. Make sure you subscribe to Cold Red Podcasts and follow us on old, all Cold Red Podcast social media platforms. We'll see you next week. We have a very special guest. Until next time, stay safe 
and be aware of your surroundings. Take care, everyone. Bye, folks.